0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast with our senior pastor, Ben Martinez. Don't forget to check out our website at calvarychapellubbock.church. There you'll find a lot more about our mission to love God, love people, and live radically. Now here's Pastor Ben. All right, let's get into this. So again, this morning, that's our base text with fervent desire. I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I Suffer, and I want to take a look at that suffering. I know for me, every single time we do communion, it is rare that I don't go right to Luke twenty-two when we're doing communion at home or any other place that I do, you know, communion with the body of Christ. And this aspect of before I suffer, and I find that so often I feel like I got to give, you know, so much time at the end of the message just to explain the suffering of Jesus. And I just thought, well, not my church, and I'm the guest pastor, so I can do whatever I want. So we're going to look at the suffering of Christ. The suffering of Jesus Christ. Because it was the only way for our sins to be paid for that we might have the opportunity for forgiveness of our sin and eternal life in and with Jesus Christ. And so, again, we're going to be doing this a little differently and I'm not going to necessarily exposit Luke 22. Instead, we're going verse by verse through this section of Scripture. We're going to essentially be doing a flyover of the events that we find in Matthew 26 and 27, Mark 14 and 15, Luke 22 and 23, as well as John 18 and 19, in relation to this statement at the Last Supper of before I suffer. And as we look at this, we consider there are many ways in which Jesus suffered. Between this moment at the table... Now you realize, as they're they're at this table, they're at a table that's called a triclinium. It is a three-sided table, looks like a horseshoe, if you will. And they're all like this, laying on their left side, propped up with their left arm, eating of the food together. And the partaking of communion is that everybody is eating of the same thing, thus making a pronouncement, we're all one together. There's a unity together. It's at this point that Jesus is, is there, and John would be right here, John the Beloved, and he leans up against Jesus' breast to inquire as to which one it is that's going to uh you know forsake him. Remember, Peter is like, John, find out, man. You know, and John sort of leans back against Jesus' breast and goes, Lord, which one is it going to be? That's when Jesus says, you know, the one that I that I dip the bread in and give it to. And of course he gives it to Judas Iscariot. And then Jesus says to Judas, what you do, go and do quickly. And the disciples have no idea that it's Judas. Nobody's looking around going, it's that guy. We know it's that guy, right? They just presumed that Jesus sent him on an errand to go buy some things because he was the guy that held the purse, the money. And, of course, we have this beautiful, beautiful, read through John's version. I mean, you know, John takes the last half, the entire last half of the Gospel of John just to talk about the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And look at the things that Jesus taught about the coming Holy Spirit and what he would do in this world and in our lives and all these things that Jesus teaches. And then we get to the garden. And as we get to the garden, the suffering really begins. We think about the ways that Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered to see Peter, James, and John could not stay awake to pray with him for even one hour as he himself prayed so fervently, so intensely that great drops of blood came from his sweat. Luke twenty two forty four. Um, he suffered as Judas Iscariot betrayed him and led a group of temple guards to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Mark 26 and Ma- uh, Mark 14, uh, sorry, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 18. I'm not going to go through and give you all those. I already told you the two chapters you can reference. Okay. Matthew and Mark, in their accounts of the betrayal by saying that all the disciples forsook Jesus and ran away. He suffered as the Jewish religious leaders who were sworn to teach and uphold the law of God violated God's own law as they held two unlawful trials by night, one before Annas, one before Caiaphas, understanding that the law of God said that a Jewish trial could not take place until after the morning light. He further suffered as those same Jewish religious leaders beat him, in some degree mocked him, as they found him guilty without proper evidence or in an opportunity for cross-examination or defense, even though the law of God demanded it. He suffered at the hands of his own people, those who were supposed to see him, recognized his coming, those who should have recognized a week prior as he comes in riding on the donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9:9, fulfilling uh, Daniel chapter 9, fulfilling all of those things. He suffered as his own people didn't see him and rejected him, and that's why he cried, and he wept over the city and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city, That always stones your own prophets. If only you would have noticed, recognized my coming, but you did not, and therefore you're going to fall. And in fact, Jesus said, Not one stone would be left upon another, as the Roman general Titus comes in and completely destroys Jerusalem in 70 AD, leaving not one stone left upon another. Jesus further suffered as those same Jewish religious leaders beat him. And mocked him. I read that already. Sorry, uh, uh, he, he suffered as the charge of blasphemy that the Jewish religious leaders charged him with was then changed. To a different charge of insurrection as they brought him already beaten and bloody before Pontius Pilate and instead accused him of being a king in opposition of Caesar. It's why, it's why Pilate writes on there, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, because that was the accusation that they gave. And of course, the accusation of somebody coming and saying they're a king in opposition to Caesar within the Roman Empire would mean the death penalty. He suffered as the very people he came to give his life for, screamed out to Pilate. Remember what did they say? Pilate said, do you want this Barabbas? Now, all of you have been mispronouncing it your whole lives. You think it's you're Barabbas. It's not, look it up, it's Barabbas. You're, you know, and, and, and he says, do you want Barabbas or this man? And, and what do they scream as the, as the Jewish religious leaders get everybody hyped up? Crucify him! Give us Barabbas! Crucify him! And they screamed and they demanded it. Though many times in the account we see Pilate wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, his wife had nightmares overnight and said, Come, have nothing to do with this just man. I had many uh, tormenting dreams overnight because of this man. And they screamed, Crucify him! He suffered more mocking and beating by the Romans. Only to be sent away from Pilate when Pilate found out where he was from, from the region of Galilee. And so he goes, oh, good, I'm going to send you over to Herod and let Herod deal with you because I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to find you guilty. Of course, he goes before Herod and is further beaten and mocked. He's sent back to Pilate. As he gets back to, the pilot, he's already beaten, bloody, beyond recognition. And I think sometimes we, we, we see these images within the church, within, you know, Bibles, picture books, whatever. And we think of this very sterile environment of Jesus with this very pleasant look on his face. Just a couple of drops, no big deal. Not realizing that he was so severely beaten that Isaiah says that, that he wasn't recognizable as a man anymore, his visage is so marred. And after all of that had taken place, after his own people blindfolded him and punched him repeatedly in the face and said, Prophesy who hit you, then the scourging. Then the scourging takes place. And I want to focus a little bit on the scourging this morning and 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 not to sensationalize it but to give you some reality of what a scourging was because we often hear things about the scourging that aren't biblically accurate not historically accurate jesus wasn't flogged with a cat of nine tails a cat of nine tails was something the british naval uh, forces used when they had unruly soldiers and it was called a cat of nine tails because it looked like you got scratched up by a cat and you could sustain hundreds of strikes from a cat of nine tails. And when they were done with you, they just threw salt water on you, partially to make it sting worse and partially as a crude antiseptic. It wasn't a cat of nine tails. And it wasn't 40 lashes. 40 lashes is from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And 40 lashes is the law of God in how to discipline somebody. And that had to be done with a rod, not with a whip. And it had to be done in the presence of the priest to make sure that there wasn't, you know, more discipline offered up than what should be offered up. And that was no more than 40. In fact, Paul the Apostle went through that five different times. Five times they gave me 39 lashes. You know, 40 minus 1. That's not the same. Well, the scourge was something that the the, the the Romans created. It looked far more like this. It was a, a, a wooden handle. It had uh, leather straps on it. On the end of the leather straps, and this one's all beat up from doing scourging demonstrations, uh, but you had acorn-shaped uh, lead Tips here, and embedded in this are, are is nail and and glass shards of pottery, things so that when it hit the body, it grabbed onto the flesh and destroyed that flesh, scraped that flesh completely off. In fact, it, 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 when doing a, a scourging demonstration, if, if you you know, I'll usually I have a covering that I'll use when I hit it, and when I hit that, you can just see it just like yanks all of the flesh off. Okay. Um. Caleb, come up here. I've known Caleb since he was a little tiny boy. In fact, my wife was on the mission field uh, with his folks and Abriana's uh, folks, and uh, one time they went to uh, where did they go in South America, Guatemala. They went to Gu- his folks went to Guatemala on a mission trip. Uh, his dad was teaching pastors down there, uh, and as he was as they were there, we were babysitting the kids, and uh, I don't know. Caleb was like this big. How old was he? Two, three, maybe. I'm sleeping in my own bed, minding my own business. Caleb jumps into the bed. I don't have a shirt on. I'm in my bed, in, doing, you know, it's my bed, my house, and it's summertime. And Caleb says, Auntie Liana, Uncle Mikey's naked. <laughs> it was not naked. I had shorts on, I just didn't have a shirt on. All right, so check this out. Scourging. Notice on there you have right handed, left handed. Okay? So switch yours to left-handed. The way that scourging works is that the Romans would have two lictors, and the lictors would stand one to the right, one to the left. And what they would do is that they would first take the victim, they would first take the victim and stretch them up and tie their arms around a pole in order to make the back completely stretched out and sometimes up high enough that your feet dangled so you couldn't move around and try to avoid the blows. And so what Roman lictors would do is you would have one that was on one side and they would strike at an angle and then the next one would strike at an angle so that you have an X-shaped pattern of strikes. Now that goes from the shoulder blades all the way down to the back of the knees. Okay? Repeatedly. And the way that this practice works is, they say, tell us what you did. The idea of scourging isn't for death. The idea of scourging is to extract a confession. And what they would do is they would say, tell us what you did. Now, what do we know about Jesus? He opened not his mouth as a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He didn't have anything to confess. He was sinless, innocent, guiltless. He had nothing that he had done wrong. And so what the Romans would do is that they would, and I'm gonna do it this way just because these are pretty beat up. I don't want something to fly off and hit somebody. They would say, what did you do? Right? And it would get harder and harder until you confess. They would only lighten up on the blows once you began to confess what you had done against Rome. You understand? There's no reason for them to lighten up because Jesus has nothing to confess to. You understand? Now, we, this, you can come up and look at this later. This is torturous. Okay, like some of the folks in the front row here have seen when I've done a demonstration at home, this will destroy a body. If you, if you hit wrong with this, in three blows, you can kill somebody. But you have to understand the Romans didn't want to kill people with scourging, the Romans wanted to extend the length of torture and punishment as long as they could. In three blows, you can—I I could hit Caleb. You know, once, boom, break through the skin, break a rib. Second time, make it all the way into the rib cage, and by the third time, I've now hit all of his vital organs, and he dies. That wasn't the intention. The intention was to make this last as long and be as difficult and torturous as possible. Okay. I don't want to do a whole thing on that because we, we, we only have so much time. Now, I will, I will speak for three hours. You probably won't sit here long enough, so we're going to just sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of move on here. Now, listen, none of this is surprising. None of this should be surprising to Jesus' disciples. Do you remember what Jesus said? Matthew and Mark both recorded for us as they were going to Jerusalem for the very last time. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said in in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify. But he didn't leave it there. He follows it up by saying, and the third day he will rise, will rise. And all the rising is great, but there is suffering before Resurrection Sunday. And so these trials by night that he's endured, this scourging, scourging is illegal because by Roman law, you wouldn't condemn a man to scourging until after you have uh, already sort of determined that crucifixion is going to be the thing and, and Jesus isn't you know, called to be crucified yet. Pilate hasn't said you have the death penalty, any of those sort of things. Jesus, Even Jesus doesn't get a fair shake. There's no fair trial for him. Isaiah 50 verse 6, the Messiah speaking through Isaiah says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. The first century historian Josephus noted that certain rebel Jews were torn to pieces by the scourge before being crucified. The third century historian Eusebius of Caesarea said about crucified victims, their bodies were frightfully lacerated. Christian martyrs in Smyrna were so torn by the scourges that their veins were laid bare and their inner muscles, sinews, even entrails were exposed. We sometimes forget that Jesus would be so weakened and injured by this point that he would be close to death from injury, from exhaustion, from dehydration, just from the scourging before even getting to the crucifixion. Dr. William Edwards. If you haven't read it, you can go online. It's a a, a short sort of report. Uh, You can find PDFs of it. Uh, It's called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. It's from the Journal of American uh, Medical Association, March 21st, 1986, volume 256. If you want that for later, I'll give it to you uh, so you can look it up. He writes this as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force. The iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive the cross. He then later says in the same report, the severe scourging with its intense pain and appreciable blood loss most probably left Jesus in a pre-shock state. Moreover, hematidrosis, probably pronounced it wrong, but that's the sweating of blood, had rendered his skin particularly tender. The physical and mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as the lack of food, water, and sleep, also contributed to his generally weakened state. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at least serious and possibly already critical. This is the suffering. That's why, again, God speaking through Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. The NASB says it, and by His scourging we are healed. Our healing came at a great cost of suffering to our Jesus, to our Messiah. Our healing. Every time we come before the Lord, and we anoint with oil, when we ask for the Holy Spirit to manifest the gifts of healing upon a person, whether that be physical or mental or spiritual, whatever the condition is, we have a basis where that healing came from. It was by His stripes, by His scourging that we're healed. Scourging provided for our healing in every way Possible, just as the crucifixion provided for our redemption and our salvation. The scourging of Jesus was all part of God's plan for us, even though the cross would be the place where the full payment for sin was finally made. John tells us in John chapter 19, following the scourging, it says, and the soldiers... After all that Jesus has already done, now the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. You know this, those thorns there in Jerusalem, one to two inches long. We know that they took a reed, and as they put that crown upon his head, they literally hit it with the reed, pounding those thorns into his skin. They twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put him put on him a purple robe, and then they mocked him further, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. At this point, Jesus is so severely beaten, so close to death, That again, we remember the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 and 14. Behold, my servant, God says, shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many as were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Translation, if you knew what Jesus looked like before they arrested him, you could no longer recognize him. We see stories in the news of brutal beatings of people that come nowhere close to what Jesus endured. And the sufferings for us—it's for us—and to put some, you know, a little bit of weight on that—it's what our sin deserves. Thank God that that He sent His only begotten Son to take the penalty, the punishment of our sin. That's what our sin deserves. That's a proper payment for the things that I've done against God. For my bad motives, for my, for my false words, for, for my, my, my works of rebellion against him, that's what the payment looks like. And we haven't even got to the cross yet. After this, they crucified our Lord at the request of the Jewish people. Listen, let me, let me just say this, right? I grew up in a different church environment. We, we only went until, you know, First Holy Communion, and then it was, you know, no more unless it was a wedding or funeral, or Christmas or Easter. But in that tradition, the thing that was placed really into my head was, well, it's the Jews that crucified Jesus. No, it's the sin of mankind that crucified Jesus. And my sin that put him on the cross is your sin that put him on the cross. He died for Jew and Gentile alike. Paul makes it very clear to the church of Galatia. There's, there's neither Jew nor Greek, free, uh, you know, free or slave or, or male or female. We're all one in Christ now. There's unity there. We all stand as sinners before him. We all now stand receivers of his grace covered with the, with the blood to cover up our sin. So don't don't misunderstand me when I say, you know, at the the request of the Jewish people is me laying it all up. No, that's just the historical facts. It was still Pilate who said, yeah, go ahead and crucify him. Of course, they're stirred into a frenzy by their own religious leaders. John chapter 19 records it for us, beginning verse 15. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Boy, were they blasphemous. They accused Jesus of blasphemy, but yet suddenly Caesar's their only king and not God himself. Then he delivered him to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away, and he bearing his cross, it'd be about 75 pounds for this part of the cross, this part of the cross, about 100 to 125, 150 Pounds. Therefore, Jesus had to carry this part of the cross upon his shoulders. We've all seen the images of that. He, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the Place of a Skull, which, uh, which is called in Hebrew uh, Golgotha, or Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, crucifixion. There's, there's mis, uh, misnomers about that. You know, we, uh, if you like me, you, you grew up in a church where you saw pictures of Jesus with a nail right here. You know, that's, that's a beautiful depiction. Physically impossible to keep somebody on the cross by that. It's going to rip right through. Uh, there is some thought that in the beginning, the, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, by the way. They just stole it from the Assyrians, okay? Um, and then they just made it worse. They, they were the most torturous people in, in history. Um, so there may have been a time where there was a nail here, but the arms would be tied. But by the time Jesus is crucified, what we find, I'll read you an archaeology report in just a second, is that the nail goes right here between these two bones. Because this is sufficient if you put it through both arms to help carry the weight. Now, the the feet is, is a much longer nail, Okay. Um, the way that the Romans would do this, by the way, is they would, they would run it through, particularly with the feet. They, they would run it through, and then once it's on the other side, they would just pound the nail down so that it couldn't come out, so the, so the victim couldn't wiggle themselves out. Now, by the way, I think we all know this goes without saying. It wasn't nails that bound Jesus to the cross. It was his love for us. That's why he stayed on the cross. He could have easily come down even as they were mocking him from below. Come down and save yourself, right? Like, Jesus is like, no, I'm staying here to save you. But they would run the nail through. Then they would just pound the end down in a 90 degree to keep it from coming out because nails were kind of you know hard to come by. And so then when a victim was done being crucified, once they were dead, they would just sort of pound it straight again, pull it out, and then reuse it on the next victim. Um, didn't matter to them. They were there to kill them. They, didn't, they weren't worried about you know, how uh, uh, sanitary any of this was. Now, the misnomer with the feet, and we know this from archaeology, um, we, we have all seen pictures of the feet like this, Yeah. and the the nail straight through, right? Let me tell you, that's too nice for what the Romans actually did. What we have from archaeological evidence is that uh, what they find is they find feet that are together like this with the bone through both ankles here, okay? Meaning this. A crucified victim would be on the cross like this. Then they they created this thing called a sedali, um, which was a pointed seat, a seat you don't want to sit on, but a seat to rest on, because the longer you rest, the longer you breathe and agonize. You understand, the whole whole picture was to extend the agony and the pain longer. The crucified victim would be Typically speaking, the crucified victim first would be paraded through town as Jesus carries his cross and would be paraded through town completely naked. Now, there were some times when the Romans would respect local cultures. The Jews most likely said, no, you can't can't run people through here naked, but the Romans were known for doing this. And the crucifixion itself, they would remove all of your clothing and crucify you in the nude, but crucify you in such a way for a lack of better ways of saying it, that your genitalia would be about eye level to further humiliate you. You understand? The, the, the Romans weren't into the death penalty like you know, modern man is. You know, we, we gasp at the thought of firing squad or hanging, and we prefer things like a gas chamber or an injection. The, the, the Romans knew nothing of that their only agenda was that you further feared Rome and further feared Caesar and didn't come against them. Do you understand? So we, we have archaeology to, to show us. There's a guy whose name I can't pronounce, and I'll, I'll butcher it for you so that, you know, if you're a note taker and then later just ask me how to spell it, uh, his name is something like Vasilios Zaveris. I'm sure that's completely wrong excavates a tomb by, the name, uh, by a guy by the name of Yahunanan, uh, John, uh, writes this. The examination of Yahunanan's bones showed one of the many Roman crucifixion methods. Both of his feet had been nailed together to the cross with a wooden plaque, while his legs were bent to one side. His arm bones revealed scratches where the nails had passed between, both legs were badly fractured, most likely from a crushing blow, meant to end his suffering and bring about a faster death. Now, what do we know about the two on either side of Jesus on the cross? Because it was the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, Sabbath was about to come upon them. They needed to get them off the cross because the Jews needed them off the cross for the Passover. And what did they do to those men who didn't die yet? They took a, yep, they broke their, their legs. Why? So that They fell. What happens when you fall when you're being crucified i will read you a medical report of what that looks like. You literally struggle for breath. you can't breathe you can't lift up enough to <gasps> you understand now again I'm not saying these things to sensationalize it but but I do think it's important for us to have a accurate description of what Jesus went through for us here's here's what um uh here's what uh uh Mr. Zaveras, we're going to call him, says, he says, without any supplementary body support, the victim would die from muscular spasms and asphyxia in a very short time, certainly within two to three hours. Shortly after being raised on the cross, breathing would become difficult. To get his breath, the victim would attempt to draw himself up on his arms. Initially, he'd be able to hold himself up for 30 to 60 seconds, but this movement would quickly become increasingly difficult. As he became weaker, the victim would be unable to pull himself up, and death would ensue within a few hours. In order to prolong the agony, Roman executioners devised two instruments that would keep the victim alive on the cross for extended periods of time. One known as the sedali was a small seat attached to the front of the cross about halfway down. This device provided some support for the victim's body and may explain the phrase used by the Romans to sit on the cross. Both uh, Uranius and Justin Martyr described the cross of Jesus as having five extremities rather than four. The fifth was probably the sedali. To increase the victim's suffering, the sedali was pointed, thus inflicting horrible pain. The second device added to the cross was the uh, supadenaeum, or foot support. It was less painful than the sedali, but it also prolonged the victim's agony. Ancient historians record many cases in which the victim stayed alive on the cross for two or three or more days with the use of the suspedaneum. The church father Origen writes of having seen a, a crucified man who survived the whole night and the following day. Josephus refers to a case in which these uh, in which three crucified Jews survived on the cross for 3 days. Again, the point to make the suffering last longer. To summarize the findings from the archaeologists that discovered and investigated the hill bones, says the two two hills were side by side, nailed to the cross again like this, uh, with one nail in such a way the legs had to be bent together and turned to the side. Uh, Listen, I got messed up knees. Just 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 showing this to you hurts me. I can't imagine hours like this. Okay, you you know what? Do this because some of you some of you got that look. Some of you have that look that people get towards the end of a sermon, all right? So everybody stand up for a second. Stand up. Everybody stand up. I'm going to treat you all like, like, like this is summer camp and you're teenagers. No, I'm just, I'm, but I'm being serious. For just a moment, turn, turn your feet. And then turn your body back towards me. You got to give it a little bend because you just can't do that. And then go ahead and stick your arms out. How, how would you like to have nails holding your, your arms in place for you and, and a nail in your foot there. How would you like to do that? You can sit back down. How, how would you like for that to take place after beating and mocking and scourging? How would you like every breath you take to cause just enough movement that you're scraping the backside that is now quivering ribbons of flesh across a as we say, an old rugged cross. <laughs> like sandpaper with every breath. You understand what was necessary. You understand the suffering that, as Jesus says, with fervent desire, of desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Because none of us could ever endure that for our own sin. You couldn't pay for your own sin. I couldn't pay for my own sin. Only the sinless Savior could suffer and die for our sin and pay for our sin. So the two heels were side by side, nailed to the cross, one nail in such a way that the legs had to be together and turned to the side at a hard angle while also being bent in a very unnatural position as only the left buttock would be able to be supported by the pointy sedali preventing the collapse of the body causing prolonged torturous pain and agony. The archaeologist says the the arm bones of the victim revealed the manner in which they were attached to the horizontal bar of the cross. A small scratch was observed on one bone, the radius of the right forearm just above the wrist. The scratch was produced by the compression, friction, and gliding of an object of the fresh bone. This scratch is the osteological evidence of the penetration of the nail between the two bones of the forearm, the radius and the ulna. 1986, another thing you can uh, read for free, Uh, Dr. William Edwards wrote an article in the Journal of American Medical Association, in fact, the same one I quoted from before, on the physical death of Jesus Christ. Um, He says, although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. The victim's back was first torn open by the scourging, Then the clotting blood was ripped open again when the cloth was torn from the victim. When he was thrown to the ground to fix his hands to the crossbeam, the wounds were torn open again and contaminated with dirt. Then as he hung on the cross, each breath made the painful wounds on the back scrape against the rough wood of the upright beam. When the nail was driven through the wrist, it severed the large median nerve going to the hand. This stimulated nerve produced excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms and could result in a claw-like grip in the victim's hand. Beyond the excruciating pain, crucifixion made it painful to simply breathe. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders made it feel like you could breathe in but not out. The lack of oxygen led to severe muscle cramps, which made it even harder to breathe to get a good breath one hand uh, to to uh, one had to push against the feet and flex the elbows pulling from the shoulders putting the weight of the body on the nail-pierced feet producing searing pain and flexing the elbows twisted the hands hanging off the nails lifting the body for a breath also scraped the open wounds on the back against the rough wooden post each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing exhausting and led to a quicker Death. He goes on to say not uncommonly insects would light upon or burrow into the open wounds or the eyes, the ears, and the nose of the dying and helpless victim and birds of prey would tear at these sites. Moreover, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. Now death from crucifixion could come from a number of different ways. Acute shock from blood loss suffocation from being too exhausted to breathe dehydration uh, heart attack induced by stress heart rupture from congestive heart failure we know that if the victim didn't die fast enough they would break their legs as they did with the two victims on the other side uh, either side of jesus we sometimes misuse that word that english word excruciating it comes from the romans out from the cross that's what excruciating means the next time you, you feel like you're in excruciating pain, that's what you're saying. You're saying your pain is equivalent to one on the cross. Um, the Roman statesman Cicero said, it's a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is an act of wickedness. To ex- execute him um, is, uh, uh, is almost murder. What shall I say of crucifying him? An act so abominable, it is impossible to find any word adequately to express. The Roman historian Tacitus described crucifixion as a torture fit only for slaves. And I remind you, because of his love, it's what Jesus went through in our place to pay the penalty of our sin. A penalty we could never pay for ourselves. And that because God so loved the world. God so loved you that he sent his son to live perfectly, to faithfully teach his word, to show and live the heart of God, to display what it is to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, but also to pay for our sin. This is what was necessary. Our sin really is that bad before God, because God is completely holy. God is completely righteous. God is completely just. God is also completely full of grace and mercy. Our sin really deserves to be judged righteously and justly, and it was judged as Jesus put it upon himself. The wonder Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Now we know the other two criminals and one repents and Jesus Uh, says to him, you know, today you'll be with me in in, in paradise, and, and, and we see all of that. But I want to focus on what I think is probably the worst suffering of all. Because all of these things are merely physical. Do you know what I think was the absolute worst suffering that Jesus endured for us? I'll read it to you from Mark chapter 15. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's with the three hours of darkness? Great theological debate there. But the idea is this. It was in those three hours of darkness in which the reason why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That there was for the one and only time in all of eternity a separation between the Son and the Father. And the separation was because my sin was upon him separating him from the Father. You realize God's hand isn't too short that he can't reach. His ear isn't, you know, deaf that he can't hear. It is our sin that separates us from God. The greatest suffering was not the mocking. It was not the beating. It was not the scourging. It was not the crucifixion. The greatest suffering was hanging in my place, separated from God because of my sin. And because of yours. That's the greater suffering. The rest of it is physical. To be separated from the Father. Because of me. My sin being paid for. Your sin being paid for. And it's why we have recorded for us in John's Gospel what the very last words of Jesus were. When he would received the sour wine, he said what? Three words. Say it again. It is finished. And he gave up his spirit. It's finished. Payment. Sin was finished. Now the evidence, the proof of that? Well, that's what we'll celebrate on the last Sunday of this month. resurrection. That's the proof. That's the evidence that it was finished. That's the proof. And the evidence that everything he ever said and did was true, was real. But the suffering was necessary to pay for our sin. And that's why when he says, it is finished and gave up his spirit, that's why the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil was like this thick, made of badger skins. You weren't going to tear it. God tore it in two from top to bottom, meaning we no longer have to go through man, no mediator other than Christ, no priesthood to go through. We come and enter into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus, through his skin, his body, which that veil which was torn according to the author of Hebrews. It was finished. See, it doesn't matter how bad of a person you might think that you are. Doesn't matter how good of a person you think you are. Jesus fully paid for our sin on the cross, making the one and only way for us to be forgiven and set free. And that is that thing that pastors are always saying. Now let's reflect on these things as we come to the communion table. Let's reflect on what Christ did for us. Before we just get, you know, a, a, a couple of little clear cups and a little piece of bread and a little bit of juice to drink down. Let's reflect on what he's done for us. And again, listen, none of this was so that anybody walks out of here feeling guilty. All of this was for us to see the great love of God, the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This isn't guilt. Okay, if you got got some guilt there, I don't know, talk to Jesus about that. I'm not not saying any of these things to give you guilt. I want you to see the great love of God for wretched, repulsive, sinful people like us who loved us so much to send his son in our place. Let's do this. I'm gonna pray. Have the uh, worship team come up. Um in a minute I'll call the, the ushers up, the communion team up. Let's let's just pray. Father, we God, we've, we've we've looked just a bit, just a piece of all that Jesus went through for us. Lord, I would ask right now. That whether it be the hardest heart, God, maybe the person who's been walking with you the longest and is just all of this has just become old hat to them, Lord. Even to the person that has just met you, and God, perhaps the person that has never even come to know you, Lord. I pray that your love would be so tangibly felt within our hearts in this room this morning. That, God, we would be those ready and willing to receive your love for us. The fullness of your love for us, God. For Lord, your love provides for abundant life now. Not just for a moment of examining what it is that Christ did for us, but for us to understand how to walk in your love right now and all the way through eternity. So God, overwhelm us by your great love in this room this morning, God that your Holy Spirit would do that work, God, of drawing us deeper into your presence, Lord. That If there be any calluses upon our hearts, God, you would just knock those calluses right off. Find that tender spot that only you can touch and speak to, Lord. Father, as a group of people, various situations in our lives, various ages, we ask right now, with with the help of your Holy Spirit, God, to be able to come to you and to recognize what you've done for us. To bring us to a place of sincerity. That whether it be for the very first time in our lives or whether it be the 10 millionth time in our lives that we have done this, God, we could come with sincerity and truth and we could say to You, Lord, thank You. Thank You, Father, for what You have accomplished through Your Son, Jesus, for me. Father, would You forgive me for those times and in those ways, God, that I have taken for granted what Jesus did for me. Would you speak to my heart, God, and touch my heart in a fresh way even right now, God? Would you search our hearts, God, And see if there's any wickedness there, any wicked way, anything that is displeasing to you there, God. And then, God, would you take out the scalpel, God, and perform a necessary surgery upon us. Putting away those things, Lord, that separate us from you, that get in the way of you. Drawing us deeper into your presence than ever before. That we could come. Say, Lord, forgive me. Father, cleanse me. Father, apply the blood of Jesus to my sin. Remove all the filth, the junk, the yuck, the sin from my heart. Fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. That you would guide and direct my life. That you would give me a steadfastness for you. Particularly in these very strange days that we live in. Make me new in Jesus once again. Remind me of the newness I have in Christ. Renew my spirit. Restore the joy of my salvation. As I once again, or maybe for the first time, fully surrender my life to you. It's in Jesus'